This episode is brought to you by Cardinal Health. Cardinal Health Medically Integrated Dispensing Solutions helps your care team keep patient care within the four walls of your practice to deliver the most personalized, patient-centric care. With differentiated technology and analytics, along with best-in-class program support and expertise, we'll help your medically integrated dispensing pharmacy navigate industry complexities, optimize your processes, and expand the amount of patients you serve. To connect with a Cardinal Health member or to learn more, go to cardinalhealth.com slash dispensing. That's cardinalhealth.com slash dispensing. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the PQI podcast. May is Brain Cancer Awareness Month, and this week we sit down with Craig Olson. Craig is a national board-certified teacher in Spokane, Washington. He lost his first wife, Rachel, to glioblastoma, and we'll discuss the role of the patient caregiver and his book, Defeating the Unbeatable. All right. Well, thank you so much, Craig, for joining us on the PQI podcast today. To start out, will you please introduce yourself and tell us a little about your background and what you currently are doing? For sure. Thank you. And I appreciate you allowing me to be a part of this. Uh, I'm Craig Olson. I live in Spokane, Washington, the other side of Washington State, away from Seattle. Got to specify that. Uh, with my wife, Tasha, our two boys, Michael and Camden, and the two dogs, Sage and Bentley, always have to include those. Um, I'm a national board-fied, board-certified math middle school math teacher, and I'm excited to be on here. Wonderful. So you have, well, I need to get to your family in just a minute, but you have one of the toughest jobs, I think, of all, like in combining math and middle school. <laughs> I just made major props to you I have to say thank you it has its moments where they're a little more challenging than others but I love math so that's a good thing teach the other subjects is kind of nice that's a, that's a good thing then do you coach at all too or are you teaching? not anymore with the boys okay. the ages they are now it's their sports and so that's getting to be a dad versus having to coach is not always a bad thing a good thing. And then I have to say, so we know you well at Encoda because your wife, Tasha, that you mentioned is our Tasha. So Natasha Olson, who is one of our managers of clinical initiatives in charge of all of our PQIs and a lovely um, person. So thank, thank you for sharing her with us as well. Yes, I, she is a very special person, that's for sure. That um, we have you on the podcast today to talk about. Um, we have Brain Cancer Awareness Month and things surrounding it. And you, I know, have a story that goes along with that. So you released a book called Defeating the Unbeatable, and it's great. Uh, but what is the premise of the book and your reason for writing it? All right. So back in 2009, uh, my first wife, Rachel, was diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, it was a very interesting kind of story leading up to it. And as we began going through the uh, life of living with cancer and brain cancer and being a spouse caretaker, I kind of started looking around trying to find, is there anything that kind of fits what I'm going through and support to kind of help me? And there's a lot of things kind of related to the person going through cancer, but not necessarily the caretakers, the support system and what to kind of expect or what to gain or learn from to help you moving forward. And so 
I initially wrote a previous book titled Living with Cancer Through the Eyes of the Spouse, which was just kind of my take. And it, so it was kind of like taking our Caring Bridge website that we had and putting those into kind of a story type thing. Um, but it wasn't really what I had envisioned. And so as she kind of progressed through her battle, I kind of kept things in the back of my mind of, ooh, I wish I had known this, or ooh, people could benefit from knowing this. Um, and so those were kind of put in the back of my mind. Didn't know really if I would continue with writing because I hated writing growing up. So the idea of becoming an author was like so far not anywhere in my uh, kind of wheel. Um, but as she progressed and we got to enjoy life and blessed in a lot of ways, I had this idea of defeating the unbeatable, just kind of dug into my heart and my mind and like, what's, what's the meaning behind this? And so I actually had the title of the book years before I actually started even writing it. And just kind of that idea of, you know, death is unbeatable. We all will die at some point, but being able to feed it by living your life in spite of death kind of always being right at the doorstep was kind of the premise behind writing the book. And I talk a lot about it in different ways you can help defeat the unbeatable in a battle, even with cancer. Wonderful. I love the premise. Um, I think it's so important to you. You're right. That it is a space that we don't have enough resources. And I, I feel like the, the caregivers and someone going through it, um, there isn't a ton out there for you. And I feel like you're, you're kind of, and we'll talk about this later, but maybe a little bit left behind in the care sometimes. Yeah. So, um, so the book uses a lot of baseball analogies to describe your journey with your wife's brain cancer. So why, why did you choose baseball? Baseball growing up was always life to me. Like I loved baseball, whether it was playing baseball, practicing baseball, home run derbies in the backyard, you know, whiff ball games, baseball cards. They were always something that was so near and dear to my heart. It was kind of my way of living as a child growing up. And um, I was blessed with actually being fairly good at it. And it actually helped pay for college. And so it being one of my main loves growing up and throughout my life, I figured there's so many parallels between our journey and what the goals were for the different steps and chapters that I used. I felt like baseball had such good correlations between that and then being able to use biblical things that also backed it was awesome. So it just kind of it pulled everything together and, and it allowed me to maybe hit people that weren't necessarily going through that exact situation of brain cancer or really even cancer. It allowed me to kind of go to maybe other hard times in people's lives, how they still could make those connections. And so baseball just kind of fit pretty seamless for me. And I can talk for hours on baseball. So <laughs> made it easier. The great connector, the great connector. So I did, I do love the biblical things in it as well, but I, I learned some things I think about baseball, maybe that I didn't know, because I'm definitely, I enjoy watching it at a live game, but I'm not the baseball expert for sure. So. That's fair. Our son, Michael could probably teach you a few things too. Uh, I'm sure that he could. Yes. <laughs> we, we all, I think you guys are Braves fans, right? Yes, we are. So we, we all need to meet in Atlanta sometime and there take all the boys to a game. That'd be fun. 
So we are currently in Brain Cancer Awareness Month. Will you tell us a little more about your wife's diagnosis and her treatment? And I know I'm just curious, so how old, because I know you're still really young, so you have to have been really, really young when all of this first started. Yeah, so we got married in 2007 when we were 20, um, and she turned 21 the following year, and then I had just turned 22, and so it was the February of, what would that be, 2009? Yeah, February 2009, we were getting ready to go to a Super Bowl party. And she had a seizure, a grand mal seizure in our bathroom. I had no clue what a seizure looked like. I didn't know anything. So it was, it was wild to me. Um, I know you'll appreciate this. It was like she was placed down though. When she fell, she missed our bathtub by less than half an inch with her head. So like, it was just, it was it was wild the way it worked out, but um, she had the grand mal seizure. I called a hospital. We end up, she had two more seizures between the time of the initial one and when they actually got her to the hospital. In fact, they took longer to get her inside because she had a seizure in the ambulance at the hospital. Oh my God. Um, they did a CT scan, told me there was a spot about the size of her pinky fingernail which was like, okay, you know, we can do that. And they kept running tests and things like that and told us that they would need to do a biopsy to check it. But in between, they had done an MRI that they didn't talk to me about and come to find out it was the size of a tangerine, not the size of a pinky finger. So there was a little disconnect there. Um, but when they did the biopsy, they told us it was a uh, grade two, possibly a low grade three astrocytoma. Um, but they didn't have the facility capabilities where we were at in Fargo to be able to manage and treat it and go through those steps. And so we ended up coming over to Seattle to the University of Washington Medical Center. So a little bit bigger facility. And they immediately got her in, I think within two weeks after getting there is probably about when they had her surgery. And it was at that point that they came back and were like, yeah, it's actually a grade four glioblastoma. And oh so it was kind of that whirlwind of, Ooh, we, this is more treatable to all of a sudden 12 to 18 months. If you're lucky, you know, 5% chance of going longer than that. If that even, and it was just like, we're going from thinking treatable, we can work through this life can kind of temporary but move forward to how much life do we got left type situation um they immediately started her once she was able to get out of the ICU and um the physical therapy unit occupational she went through all the different therapies um they started her right in on temozolomide and radiation um she was supposed to do that for I think it was supposed to be about three, four cycles. So four or five months, roughly that they were going to have her do that. Um, but towards the end of the first cycle, her blood counts just were getting demolished and to the point where she didn't even get to finish either the first or second cycle because it was so low. Um, so they took her off that and immediately started her in on carboplatin and Avastin, which okay. was 
I didn't know much about it. They told me that this is a drug that's actually normally used if breast cancer, but it could work. We've seen promise with this and accompanying it with the Avastin seemed to be great. And I mean, I still was 22 years old. I don't know what they're talking about, yeah. but I was like, okay, we trusted these doctors quite well. They were very personable people, um, which we'll talk about. I know later on, which I'm excited about as well. Um, but she was on that for, I think it ended up being about a year, year and a half on that treatment cycle and was doing great. The tumor actually started shrinking a little bit off of that, which was like awesome. And so she actually got off any treatments from about end of 2011 through the beginning of 2017, oh, which wow. was insane. You know, it's not expected. Um, but then when she did have her reoccurrence, um, we went to using that similar treatment along with, uh, the Optune head radiation type cap to use to kind of that localized throughout. And those were the kind of different treatments that she went through at those different stages. Okay. That's, that's a lot. That's a, a lot when you're 21 and 22 years old too. Yes. I know not, not what you expect when you're first starting out your life together. No. <laughs> no. Um, so the book has a chapter called team and what is the importance of the team when facing cancer and treatment? So I know you kind of talk about your own personal team, then the medical team. Um, what's the importance there? Yeah. So you hit the two big ones around the head. It, your core team, you're going to have your medical team and your family team. But I, I kind of put that in quotes because for every person that might not actually be your blood family, it might be close family friends that are always there for you, able to take your kids. If you've got kids or, you know, help with animals, help with jobs around the house, whatever it may be. So um, the thing with that I kind of wanted to point out with the idea of the team with regards to like the medical support team in the fact that if you want to be successful with the team, you as a patient, as a caretaker, need to make sure that you have a good relationship with that doctor as well, not just the patient. And we were very blessed with having an awesome oncology doctor in Seattle that um, made it a lot easier to be able to trust him, which was huge. And all the support staff always having smiles on their faces and um, it, it made a huge difference. So that core team of them and then like family members, huge, um, but also understanding that your team can change and evolve and mold depending on what situation and what part of your journey you're in. I know for us, like when we were first in Fargo, we had our team of, it was called our math family, a bunch of math nerds from college. <laughs> And, yeah, it, it, we were really smart. They were all smarter than me, actually. So, you know, and now I, and now I marry a pharmacist. So I'm even now it's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> like I'll help world. No. Yes. Um, but they helped us in that time. I, I still kind of keep in touch with some of them. But in that moment, they were a huge part of our team. Um, and then in Moses Lake and Othello, we had a lot of core team members that were friends that we're like family, support us, whatever we needed. Um, something I do want to mention, though, with those teams that I think is huge is 
when you are a teammate of someone going through cancer or their caretaker, when you're asking them how to help or what they can do, come with maybe a specific thing in mind, because in that moment as a caretaker or a person going through treatment, you don't always know what you need. So maybe you know that uh, the garbage might need taken care of or lawn might need mowed. Offer up something a little more specific because it makes it a lot easier for them to be like, you know what, that would be great. That helps a lot versus me trying to be like, I'm worried about this. I don't know what else we need, you know, other ways. Um, but likewise, I'm a very, I'm going to do it myself type personality. And so then being from a caregiver standpoint or a person going through cancer treatments, when people ask for, ask to help you, take it. Don't hesitate to take it. Don't feel pride that I have to do this for myself. That helps there for a reason. People want to help you allow them to. It helps them feel good and feel like they're contributing to you as well. So take advantage of the team both ways. I love both of those points. And I agree. I think on the one hand, I could learn that lesson in life. Like I feel like <laughs> people, when people have troubles though, I'm always like, let me know what you need or how can I help you instead of maybe. And then I think as the person you feel like, well, I need this, but I may not necessarily want to say it. So, you know, like I think coming with something in mind and offering to do something is really valuable. And then I also think, yes, accepting that help. And I think it like, you know, when I, when I help someone like, oh, it makes me feel good. Like I'm glad to do it. Like I want to do something. So I think if we all realize that we're giving others the opportunity to serve and to, you know, step, step into the, your story. Like, I think that's a great point too. For sure. For sure. Um, and then, so continuing on the team theme, um, our audience is largely made up of the medically integrated oncology team. What would you like the healthcare team to know most as a health or as the caregiver? Awesome. Yeah. So as I said a little earlier, we were very blessed with the oncology team that we experienced um, in, in Seattle, which was awesome. Uh, the doctor, he was always very upbeat. He came into the room smiling, um, asking how everybody was, not just the patient. So feeling like they were a part of your life versus just that, you know, the file, the medical folder of here's this patient. So I feel like being able to, as a healthcare team, make the patients feel like you are invested in them, which I know a lot of, I mean, you guys get into that career because you're where to help people. But just that little thing of feeling like they're a person is a, goes so far into that really I feel the success of then those treatments, those medical decisions you're making. So making them feel like they are living life with you. Um, I know we had different doctors along the way that sometimes walked into the room and it was like a business meeting. Mm. Those were the times where it's kind of like, are we where we're supposed to be? Is this what we're supposed to be doing? And I feel like I, I started questioning more about what the decisions were being made, um, which unfortunately I learned a lot more about the brain and how everything works over the course of this. <sighs> ten um, but I just feel like when you make a patient and their caregivers feel like you're invested in them as a whole, 
It feels like you're being wrapped around and brought in with them. It it is such a powerful tool that uh, healthcare providers can easily bring within a situation of going through cancer. It's a great tip and ma- making people feel like they're a person and not a number, I think is yes. Extre- yes. extremely important, even, even to the mathematician. So, right? yes. yes, yes. Um, and then you also talk about the importance of taking time for yourself as the caregiver in the book. So will you elaborate more on this and maybe even some ways that you did it or tips for other people who are going through the same thing? For sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, the importance of taking care of yourself, I learned the hard way. I learned it through um, some less than happy moments for my towards myself in my life. Um, I'm a very rock type personality. You know, I want to be there for everyone else. I, oh, I'm struggling right now. I'm going to put on a brave face because they're needing the help. They're the ones that are going through this, not me. And everything I thought I might need, I'm like, I'll get to that some point. I'll get to that some point. However, I found out not only taking time for myself as a caregiver actually was benefiting, would have benefited Rachel more as well, because it finally got to the point she told me, leave, go do something, <laughs> get away from me. I'm tired of with love, but get away. Um, and so like it finally, I kind of realized this when she finally said, you need to go play golf. I love golf as well. She's like, go play golf, go. And I was playing fine, but not like exceptional or whatever. And I kind of hit a, not even a bad shot. It was an okay shot. And for whatever reason, I immediately just took my golf club and threw it. And it wasn't a toss. Like I reared back and this thing probably went 40 yards. And as it's in air, (laughs) see the direction where it's heading. Uh Uh-oh. Was right there. And it, of course, instead of landing on the grip and not having issues, it lands right on the club head, big old dent in it, the, the club's deformed a bit. Oh, no. Like in that moment, I realized maybe I'm not taking care of myself quite as well as I need to. Um, so that was kind of one of those aha learning moments. Now, I still reverted back to the that at different times, but um for maybe people that are uh, caregivers that are needing some ideas, always going back to maybe whatever your hobbies are. Maybe it's you need to go do a workout. Maybe you go for a walk. Maybe you build something. Just taking yourself away from that uh, like intimate situation where you're always right there for you. It might literally just go to the other room. But taking that time for yourself is so huge because as I learned and kind of went through this, I my health deteriorated as well. I put on a ton of weight. I got winded very quickly, which being a college athlete was not something that I ever thought I experienced. And I was only a couple of years out of playing baseball. And so it was like, my health's got some issues and I need to make adjustments to it. And so making sure that you do take that time will help you be healthy to be able to help your a family member going through treatment. Yes, great point. I think if you're not healthy yourself, you definitely can't care for someone else in a healthy manner or help them get healthy. Yes, exactly. And so I have more questions. 
but the boys, the boys, I didn't hear about this. They came along in the middle of this, right? When she was off of treatment. Yes. Yeah. You guys, they're kind of little miracle boys, right? For sure. Yeah. They actually called Rachel the poster child for brain cancer and with how well she was doing. um, In fact, so when she started treatment with the infusions, we actually went back to college at Central Washington University. And she actually got a middle school math and science teaching degree. Um, Through um, all the student teaching, everything. Um, And after being on the Carbone and Vastin for about a year and seeing that progress and no going the other directions, we asked them, hey, can we try? to have kids and they're like, I mean, you've been good. We're gonna have to closely monitor you to make sure that your tumor doesn't come back. But if at a year point of being off treatments, cause that was kind of their line of, you have to be off for about a year so that it's kind of worked through your system. Um, if at that year point, you're still doing great, why not? You guys can give it a try. We highly doubt you'll be able to, but go for it. And lo and behold, we end up with two boys that are very healthy and going about life and you know all the good stuff that comes and driving mom and dad crazy (laughs) all those good things yes just thinking about the the, yeah the the caregiving for her but you're also caregiving for those two little boys too so it's a, a lot on one person um and then there's a chapter called post game celebration and you discuss celebrating the little things, which I love, but why is that important? And how did you celebrate the little things? Or will you, will you talk more about what you mean by that? For sure. So um, celebrating the little things kind of came about with kind of the whole um, way Rachel kind of went about her cancer treatment. Um, when she was told she it was a grade four instead of grade two, she and me was like, let's get started. Like, you know, that brave face, but she was always upbeat and positive through everything. Like, and, and we, to us, to this day, feeling like that's how she was able to go as long as she did, you know, that 12, 18 months being blown by was because she had said an upbeat and positive attitude. And so the idea of celebrating the little things is the idea of if we're always waiting for that big news, you know, we go in for the MRI and the tumor shrunk, that's a big celebration. But if we go in, the MRI stays the same, or there might be a slight new spot. And that's all we're living by is just those MRI results. Um, Your whole well-being and your attitude are going to be negative always. And so instead of looking at it from that perspective, I kind of started really focusing in on, hey, what are the little things we can celebrate? They might be something that most people are like, why? So it might be finishing a treatment, you know, being done with an infusion. She felt good. Let's go get an ice cream, you know, or maybe it was on road trips, uh, listening to special music, whatever it may be, just those little things and enjoying them. Um, we went to Montana a lot because that's where we grew up and the uh, sunsets, you know, things like that, just enjoying those moments 
and living only in those moments versus living only in the cancer diagnosis. And I know it sound, I'm making it sound a lot easier than it really is, but it, it's a mind shift to move that way. And um, I mean, being a teacher, growth mindset versus fixed mindset. So really looking at, hey, how can I get better? How can we do this better to allow us to live life fuller? Um, was huge. It was huge. And I, I think the big thing to understand is these celebrations don't have to be huge. You don't have to make a huge show of it. You know, maybe it's turn the TV off for five minutes and have a little conversation or just play cards, something little. Those can, those could be celebrations because you're making those memories that could be what you're looking back on as you move on in life if you end up having to. And so I, I think it's a small thing, but it's so powerful. And I feel like a lot of people could benefit from that not even in the cancer diagnosis, just in life, just experiencing those moments. For sure. I was going to say, and I know it's so important in cancer and cancer treatment, but I think all of what you just said could translate really well into everyone's everyday life too. Um, I think even if if it's not cancer, we all have big issues. And I feel like we all spend a lot of time waiting for you know, life to be perfect instead of doing what you're doing and celebrating little things every day. So a a good message for anyone listening for sure. And then you did eventually lose your beautiful wife, Rachel, and you talk about your journey with grief in the book. So what would you want our audience to know about grief? And will you talk about moving forward after that grief as well? For sure. So one of the biggest things that I took away from all this is that everybody does grief differently. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going to go through grief in their own way. And some people will look fine on the outside, but they're inside, they're struggling. You know, they're putting on that face, which early on, that's kind of what I did. Um, others are going to be outwardly, I mean, they will be a mess and struggling and they they show it with every piece. So understanding that just because someone looks great, they look like they're doing life great, doesn't mean they're in a positive maybe state of mind at that moment. They're still really struggling. Um, some people work through their grief a lot quicker than others. And that's okay if that's your personality. Um, but one of the things that I really strongly encourage people to understand is don't force your grief on others or the way you envision grieving to go onto how others are grieving. You know, I, I don't feel like grief is a fits in one box that everyone's box is the exact same. I mean, we, we all are going to go through the stages, but you know, someone's stage for one part might take them a long time while another person, it might be a shorter time frame. Um, I, you know, like for me, I went back to work probably three weeks after Rachel passed and I had a lot of people that were shocked and, you know, kind of whispering that, is he really, should he be here? And for me, it was exactly where I needed to be because sitting in the house day in and day out, I am a very active person in general. And it was just, it made it feel like I was living in that heaviness all the time. And so I needed to get back and start 
getting some normalcy in my life, not only for me, but for the boys. Um, and when you're doing that, just understanding it's okay. You might have bad days when you get back into kind of your normal. I mean, I had lots of bad days. I remember one day that I was on my prep that I ended up out in our big playground area and there was a kickball out there and I just beat that kickball around the whole outside of the perimeter of the playground and our school counselor actually went to my teaching partner great friend of mine and was like do I need to go talk to him (laughs) point Blake said no you do not go near him let him do his thing he needs this this is what he's doing and and that's that was something I went through but it was like just doing that situation I was then able to kind of come back and be like okay I can go about the rest of my day um, so yeah, grief, it's different for everybody. Um, appreciate everyone's grief for the way they're doing it. And if you're grieving, you do you, let people do them. I think that that's kind of huge. And it kind of leads into the idea of moving forward um, and kind of understanding that once again, this looks different for everybody. You know, uh, maybe it was going back to work quicker than other people might. Um, maybe it's moving to a new place because you just can't do that spot or in my situation, eventually getting remarried. Um, the important thing is once again, you need to understand yourself and being honest with yourself when you're going through the grieving process and deciding when to move forward and whatever that looks like. Um, but it's not, one of the things I caution people on is don't make it be a spur the moment decision. Like actually take some time to really, is this actually good for me? Maybe talking with people that aren't necessarily right in the situation kind of along with you is a good option as well. You know, like a friend that is not so close that their grief could impact what they're giving you as feedback um, could help a lot in that different situation. Um, regardless there's always going to be people that are questioning and judging your decisions we're humans that's what we do Um, of life (laughs) yes exactly and so i mean there were definitely people that were like he is moving on way too quick this isn't right this isn't he hasn't grieved correctly and the different things and i think the part that was the hardest is the instead of having conversations, it kind of was more, you felt like it was just the judgment. And so it's okay to have those conversations, but doing them in a non-confrontational way, I think is huge. But when a person makes the decision for themselves, you know, you got to just trust that they did look inward and went through the process and felt, and it wasn't a spur of the moment situation. And just trust that they made the decision that they felt was best for them. And just be with them during that time. I think it's a a great tip and a lot of information to think about there, especially we're, we're all human, like you said, and can be very quick to judge each other. So yes, Yes, for sure. Take the time to figure out and listen to other people. We can, we can learn a lot of things too. For sure. For sure. And then, so there's so much more that I could have you talk about, but we are about out of time. So if someone would like to find your book, which I highly recommend, how could they get a copy of the book and learn more about your story? 
For sure. So I have a website that I use to do book orders because then they come directly from me so I can sign them. You get a personalized copy versus, you know, from a store where it's not. Um, and that's from my website's Craigery19. So that's C-R-A-I-G-O-R-Y 19.wixsite.com forward slash defeat. And we'll put that in the show notes too. Perfect. Yes, it's it's a mouthful. Um, and I've got an order form right on there as well as um, they put in the order and then I contact them directly to get any more information as needed. Uh, also on that website, kind of cool. I've got a weekly kind of short podcast that I do, little five minute videos that I update sometimes there and a link to my Spotify where those podcasts are also posted now, which is super exciting too. In fact, Tasha was on last week. That was a great Aww, fun, fun time to do that. Yes. Um, let's see what else. And I do have some exciting news as well that yes. I've actually just worked on finishing up a new book that I'm working on trying to get published right now. And it's actually a children's book. Um, so kind of now moving that helping from a caregiver's perspective to kind of a kid's perspective in a more low-key uh way written with animal characters and but it, it's a true it's based on a true story michael didn't necessarily get to do all these things but it was kind of from a day in his life growing when he was younger and us going to seattle so getting to talk about some of those words like oncologists and things like that so it it shares some of that information in a kid-friendly way and so I'm super excited about that. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll be hearing some more and be able to share additional information on that. So I'm excited about that. I love it. I think that's, it's such an important book too. And I think every oncologist, when it happens, because I know it will happen, uh, need, needs to have that in their office because there is, I mean, there's nothing out there. I'm sure there are a few things, but that I know of that really, you know, can help kids understand. And that's got to be so, so hard for them to, to fully grasp what's going on. For sure. And I have to thank you, shout out to you for helping push me to go move oh, more gosh. forward. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. I just want, I, I want my signed copy when it comes out. So, got it. <laughs> um, and then I have a couple of questions that we ask all of our podcast guests. So this one, in a way, is a stretch for you, but it shouldn't be a stretch for you. <laughs> so we call it the podcast, the PQI podcast, as you know, to bring awareness to ENCODA's positive quality intervention resource, which you might have heard of before. Um, so even though you are not in healthcare, but you do live the PQIs daily, probably through your lovely wife. Um, but what value do you see in this resource? Yeah, so... Yeah, I don't, I don't directly spend time looking at them, so to speak, but I do live with them daily. Um, and I do hear a lot about the PQIs. Um, I do think they're a very valuable resource for healthcare professionals with just their ease and the quick access that they provide them with regards to the different medications. And really PQIs are actually what got Tasha interested in EdCoda from the beginning. Um, because she was using them within her clinical practice when she was working in clinic and she used them frequently. I, I mean, it's one of the big things that I hear a lot about. So obviously 
they are very good and important. And I, I think there's something that should be continued to be used frequently by healthcare professionals. Good answer. Good answer. I think she, she will approve of your She'll answer. Approve. <laughs> I love it that she's come full circle too, that, that that's one of the reasons why she got so involved. And now it's the, the resource that she manages. It's pretty for cool. sure. Yes. And then, so our final fun question for today is if you could have dinner with anyone living or in history, who would it be and why? And then also, I always like to add, what would you have on the menu? So what would you eat? That's a great question. Um, I think based on just kind of overall knowledge and what this person brought to the world and sports, I would say John Wooden, Coach okay. John Wooden for UCLA. I, I just think he was such a masterful person. I, you know, he was one of the all-time greats regardless with regards to coaching college basketball, but some of his greatest players, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, even after his college and pro career, they were still seen together frequently and Kareem was still learning from John Wooden. And so just the knowledge that he had to have had to still keep one of the all-time great NBA players constantly coming for him, to him for advice, I, I just feel like it would be a conversation to be hard to stop once yeah. you got to him and you know, wanting to ask all these questions, but also wanting to be completely silent and just let him talk, I think would be fantastic. Um, the food, the food. Um, it's my, my most important part. <laughs> I probably, I, 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 I normally would say, you know, give me a prime rib, do it on the Traeger. But my wife is a queen of flavors. So it could possibly just be chef's choice. She could make it, you know, I, I, I haven't had a bad meal from her, you know, so th maybe she does all the, the accompaniments and I do the prime rib on the Traeger, oh, you know, sit out good. on, sit out on our deck, just John Wooden and I talking would be fantastic. I love it. Great, great choice and great choice of menu. I'll, I'll be there for dinner too, hopefully. Perfect. <laughs> and are you going to play a little game of basketball after you shoot, shoot some hoops with him? I don't know if he'd have time to teach me how to shoot correctly. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. All right. Well, thank you so much, Craig, for joining us on the podcast today. You have been fantastic. I hope everyone checks out your book. It's great and very, very inspirational. So thank you for that. And also, again, thank you for sharing Natasha and supporting Encoda every, every single day of your life now. So thank you. And thank you for allowing me to be on here. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Craig. You can find a link to his book in the show notes. You can find the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts and on encoda.org. That's encoda.org. You can also find us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We hope you tune in next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Cardinal Health. Cardinal Health Medically Integrated Dispensing Solutions helps your care team keep patient care within the four walls of your practice to deliver the most personalized, patient-centric care. With differentiated technology and analytics, along with best-in-class program support and expertise, 
We'll help your medically integrated dispensing pharmacy navigate industry complexities, optimize your processes, and expand the amount of patients you serve. To connect with a Cardinal Health member or to learn more, go to cardinalhealth.com dispensing. That's cardinalhealth.com dispensing.